On Wednesday evening, I had a fantastic, fantastic evening. I spent an amazingly interesting and fascinating evening with Joel and Emily, helping them to start researching their family tree, their family history. And it's, it's fantastic to finally have somebody who's remotely interested in this uh, slightly nerdy, geeky subject. Most people I speak to about it, particularly the family, just kind of glaze over and you kind of nod and yawn. And it's nice to finally meet somebody who's at least pretending for an hour or two now, they were interested in it. And I was able to help them kind of make some starts in that. I've been researching my family tree for about 20 years or so. Now I've pretty much got back about as far as I can go, really all the different records that exist on all the different branches as you go back. Most of my ancestors are from Northumberland, from County Durham, from North Yorkshire. There's, uh, and that goes sort of right back to the 1600s and so on. A few bits from uh, Ireland and um, some Irish and Scots blood as well. Uh, I started researching on the Gibson name about 20 years ago and I discovered to my great disappointment that my great great grandfather, Michael John Gibson, actually came from Norfolk. No offence, David, but you know, I, I thought I'd been told he was not from here. He was a he was a baker from Blythe and his family, but he wasn't. He was from Norfolk, and I was really disappointed. Um, this is a picture in here. He was born in 1847, and I've managed to trace his mother's family—not his father's family, but his mother's family—back to 1743 in uh, Norfolk. But when I looked into his life a little bit deeper and started digging back into the history of it, what I discovered was. He was actually illegitimate. On his marriage certificate, he said his father was Charles Gibson, deceased. Turns out there was no Charles Gibson, and I don't think he knew who his father was, and I certainly never found uh, no trace of him. Uh, he took the surname of his mother, who was Mary Gibson, and that's why he was John Gibson. But if his parents had got married, if his mum had married his actual father, he wouldn't have been a Gibson. I wouldn't have been a Gibson. Imagine that. <laughs> he would have been, I would have been whatever his father's family name. That might that, that means I might have been a leader. You might be related though. Yeah. Or I might be an overman. Because you're from Norfolk, some older family. Yeah. I might even be a monk. Not literally a monk, but <laughs> <laughs> I might even be a deist. What a thought. I love looking at family trees. If you ever want to come around to my house and look at my family tree, Moses in about uh, 1500 BC. Last week we were looking at Moses, we started working our way through the book of Exodus and we started studying and looking at the life of Moses, one of the most famous, one of the most amazing, uh, well-known characters of the Bible, like Moses, and we looked at Exodus chapter 1. So rather than looking at Moses' actual, his physical family tree, what we're going to look at is the family tree of the family he was adopted into, because he was adopted into the royal family, bizarrely, uh, he ended up being raised as a prince of Egypt. I love doing this this week. I had so much fun. This week. It was just great. It was so good. Last week, as we saw, Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And, 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 and he was raised as a prince of Egypt alongside the uh, actual Pharaoh Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He was the ancestor of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. He and his family went down to Egypt to live there in 1876. BC. And his descendants, the Israelites, as they were known, or also known as Hebrews, they settled in Egypt and they lived there for the next 400 years or so. 
about 300 years after they'd gone down there, in 1507, a new royal family came into power. There's a new royal dynasty. And the king was a guy called Amosis I. And this is this guy up here. Amosis I in uh, 1570. What was one of them doing? <laughs> and and his father, Amosis I, and, also his, and his son, Amenhotep I, that the persecution of the Israelites began. And they started enslaving them and building the pyramids and various store cities and things like that. They became oppressed and became slaves, just as God had said to Abraham would happen to his descendants several hundred years earlier. And then in 1526 BC, Amenhotep I was uh, succeeded by his son, Thutmose the I. And he was the king that tried to kill all the male babies in Exodus 1 that we saw last week. And Thutmose I, this guy here, he has. Uh, a daughter here by one of his wives called Hatshepsut. Be careful how you say that. Hatshepsut. And it was his daughter, Hatshepsut, who found Moses abandoned in the River Nile. And she took pity on him and decided she wanted to raise him as her own son. And then sometime after she found um, Moses, she then got married. And she married, believe it or not, her half-brother, Thutmose II, who was the son of his father and another one. So she married her half-brother. It's quite common, apparently, then, back in Egypt. And Thutmose the, the, the first had this daughter, Hatshepsut, uh, by one wife and a son, Thutmose the second by another wife. And so Hatshepsut and Thutmose the second were half-brother and sister and also husband and wife. But despite this, they were married, they had a daughter, and Thutmose the second had at least one other wife that we know of. And by this wife, he had a son who became known as Thutmose III, this guy down here. And that was in um, 1504 BC. So the upshot of all this, still with me? Not too glazing over? <laughs> Just about, it's good, it's good. The, of all, the upshot of all this was that Moses, who was adopted by Hatshepsut, and Thutmose III grew up as adopted half-brother together in the palace in Egypt. Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt. And Moses finds himself there, his adopted half-brother is the Pharaoh. And Moses uh, grows up in this uh, situation. And Acts 7 tells us that when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated, it says, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So Moses was one of the richest men in the world. At that point, he received the best education that you could possibly get back at that point in time. He became well-known, not just well-known, but famous throughout Egypt and probably beyond for his ability to speak and for what he did. This guy was the top of the tree. The only guy above him was his adopted half-brother, who was the actual pharaoh. But when Moses hit 22 years of age, he had a problem. Because this guy here, Thutmose III, becomes Pharaoh when Moses is 22. And his adopted father, Thutmose II, had died, and his, adop his adopted half-brother by uh, another wife becomes king in 1503 BC. But the problem was, for Thutmose III, was that Moses had an almost equal claim to the throne, as he did. And so you can imagine, as he's growing up, the last thing that Thutmose III wants is Moses being around and potentially unstabling things and unsettling things and being a potential rival for the throne. So from the age of 22, Moses finds himself in this really awkward position. His half-brother by adoption doesn't really want him around. He's a threat. Uh, he's, he's a kind of problem going on in the background. 
and he's a political threat to him. And Moses has to live and, and, and kind of battle with this uneasy situation growing up from being the age of 22 for the next 18 years until he's 40 in the year 1486 BC. And at the age of 40, something really significant happens to Moses and his whole life gets uh, changed and flipped upside down. So we're going to read what happened next from Exodus chapter 2. Hope you're still with me. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 11 to 25. Exodus 2, verses 11 to 25. So we're in now, Moses is 40, and this is 1486 BC, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to real their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So here is Moses, he's 40 years of age, he's grown up, it says when he had grown up, age 40, so any guys who are not yet 40 and you still like playing on PS4s, so that's fine, no need to uh, Exodus chapter 2. He was 40 and he had finally grown up according to the Bible, but he's grown up as a prince of Egypt and he's, since the age of 22, his half-brother by adoption has been the king, the all-powerful guy, but Moses is probably sort of the second most powerful man in the world at that point. Egypt is the superpower, Moses is the number two guy. But don't forget, Moses is really an Israelite, Hebrew. And when Hatshepsut found him in the River Nile, she'd given him back to his real mother without realizing it, so that she could raise him and nurse him and feed him. And then eventually, Moses is given back to Hatshepsut, and, and then she raises him and adopts him as her son. But he doesn't go back to live in the palace until he's quite a bit older. We don't know exactly how old he was when he went to the palace. But he initially would have grown up speaking Hebrew, and he would have grown up learning the stories, learning the accounts from his parents about, Mo about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. Learning about the one true God, learning about the promises that God had made to his ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and particularly about the special promises, and we looked at these last week, the special promises that God was going to send somebody really special to deal with the problem of sin and to uh, lead the people of Israel and to be king, and through whom the whole world could eventually be blessed. And Moses would have grown up with these promises. And of course, as we saw last week, that's somebody special that 
Moses would have grown up learning about was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 1400 years later, Jesus would be born and would come into the world and live and die and rise again as we've been singing about this morning and deal with sin and death and hell so that we can have a relationship with God. So Moses lived a kind of dual identity. He was the second most powerful man in the world, rich beyond the enemy you can imagine, great power and wealth, and yet at the same time he was a Hebrew, an Israelite. But he lives as an Egyptian prince in the royal palace, and he never forgets that he is really an Israelite. In his heart of hearts he knows he's a Hebrew, he is an Israelite. And at the age of 40, Moses took a stand, and he took a step of faith. And finally Moses decides, this is my real identity, this is who I really am. I'm not an Egyptian, I am really a Hebrew, an Israelite, one of God's people. And so at the age of 40, he steps out and takes this huge step of faith, massive step of faith. Moses decided to turn his back on his royal palace, on his royal family, and join his people, the Israelites. Look at what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, the Messiah, as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses was one of the most powerful men and richest men in the world, phenomenal education, phenomenal position and situation in life, and yet he he knew that he should really be with God's people, the Israelites. And of course, the Israelites were slaves. Moses, it was, apart from being Pharaoh himself, Moses couldn't have been any higher in this world. And his people, the Israelites, couldn't have been any lower. They were slaves. They were building cities and, and, and pyramids and so on. Moses decides, he takes this massive step of faith and says, that's where I belong. That's who I really am. And so he takes this great step of faith in God, trusts in the promises that God had given to his ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And he decides to turn his back on his royal status and his wealth and all of the pleasures of sin that a prince in Egypt would normally indulge in. Everything this guy wanted was at his fingertips. And he turns his back on that and he chose to go and be ill-treated, according to Hebrews 11, along with the Israelites. And he did that, according to Hebrews 11, for the sake of Christ for the sake of the Messiah. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. Christ is Greek, God's chosen king, God's anointed king. Hebrews tells us that he did this, he took this step of faith for the sake of the Messiah, for the sake of the Christ. He put his faith in the promises that the Messiah was one day going to come and deal with sin and death and was going to come and bring blessing to all those that would put their faith in him. And that one day he would rule and reign forever. And Moses stepped out in faith and exchanged everything a man could possibly want. Everything you could want that day. He had in his hands. He had in his fingertips. And he exchanged everything he could ever want. Everything a man could possibly want for the disgrace of being known as an Israelite. The Israelites were called Hebrews. And they don't really know, but it seems to be from the Hebrew that it's a, a kind of an insult to people who were of the sand. People of the sand. This is a kind of insult. These are the lowest people in that culture. They're slaves after all. And Moses decides he would rather go and have disgrace for being an Israelite for the sake of the Messiah, for the sake of the Christ, than all that he had in Egypt. Why? Because Hebrews 11 tells us that he was looking ahead to his reward. 
Moses knew that there was something greater, there was something more important than all of the stuff that he had in Egypt, all of the stuff that he had in the palace, everything that he could have wanted. There was something bigger, there was something better, there was something greater. And that something greater and better is, of course, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and a relationship with God through trusting in the Messiah, trusting in the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And having made that decision, we get to Exodus 2, verse 11. And Moses has taken this stand and... Having, to, having decided to go and uh, identify himself with his people, with the Israelites, we don't know exactly how quickly this happens afterwards, but it says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And this was the point at which, by faith, he had decided to turn his back already on Egypt and take a stand for God. And if we read Acts 7, 23-24, which covers the same event, we read these words. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, treated by an Egyptian. So, when Moses had grown up, according to Acts 7, was when he was 40. He had lived with the knowledge that he was an Israelite, and that God had chosen the people of Israel for 40 years. He lived with this understanding, with this knowledge. He knew that God had made great promises to his people, to Israel. And that those promises said that it was through the nation of Israel that God was going to bless the whole world. And through a special descendant that would come from the nation of Israel, the Christ, the Messiah. And there came a point in Moses' life when he decided, I am going to be true to who I really am. He was a Hebrew. He was one of God's chosen race. And yet he was living as a prince of Egypt. Ultimate wealth, ultimate power. He was an Israelite, a worshipper of God, but where he lived and the way he lived denied those facts. Moses was a prince, in fact, he had a very good case to be Pharaoh. But he came to realize that to stay where he was, to stay in the palace, to stay in this ultimate position of privilege, would be a denial of his real identity, because who he really was was one of God's people. And not only that, but it would actually be a denial of God himself. To, 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 to stay in the palace, to stay in Egypt as a prince of Egypt would, have been, would be a denial of himself and of God. He couldn't stay as this prince of Egypt and be true to himself and be true to God. And so at the age of 40, he took a stand and he stepped out in faith. Not as a radical young teenager, it's great when that happens, but as an, at the age of 40, he, he stepped up and he stood out. And he stepped out in faith. What about you today? Are you being true to who you really are? Are you living by your real identity? Or are you living by another identity? If you are one of God's people, if you've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be your saviour, if you've asked him to forgive your sin, if you've asked him to come and live in your life, are you living by that identity? Or are you living by a different identity? When you're at work, when you're at school, when with perhaps a non-Christian family or, or at college or wherever it is, how do people know you? Do they know you as the person who loves Jesus or do they know you by a different identity? Moses took this huge step of refusing to be known anymore as a prince and instead he aligned himself with God and with God's people, knowing that it would cost him massively in this life. It would cost him everything. It took Moses 40 years to get to this position where he eventually would step out in faith and trust God. And taking this step would cost him everything. His half-brother was always on the lookout 
for some reason to get rid of him, to eliminate him as a threat. And in devoting himself to God and to God's people, he knew that it would cost him his status, it would cost him his wealth, it would cost him his position, his power, his privilege, and possibly even his life. But he did it. At the age of 40, he stepped out in faith, trusting in God to provide for him. It took him 40 years to do it, but he did it. And you know what? It is never, write this down on your outline, it is never too late to devote ourselves to God. It is never too late to devote ourselves to God. God is looking for people who are prepared to count the cost and to move out of their cozy existence and follow Him. And every day the call comes from God to those who love Him, who claim Him as their Saviour, to step out and follow Him every day. It doesn't matter how old we are. And I love this about this account of Moses. Moses was not a radical 18-year-old off to Bible college. Moses was a 40-year-old. You think, well, he's, kind of, you know, he's missed his chance, he's missed his opportunity. Moses at 40 steps out and lives in faith and takes that big step. doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how much we've failed God in the past. We might have lived for 40 years or 80 years and it might all have been a bit of a mess. But it's never too late to step up and begin to come out of the shadows and out of our old identity into a new identity, into our real identity, and live for God. God is looking for people who are willing today, never mind what happened yesterday, but today, to step out and follow Him and trust Him, and to trust their futures to Him, in whatever way that might look like. And that will look different for each one of us. What God will call you to do is probably not calling you to set a whole nation of slaves free. It's probably fair to say that none of us are going to have that call in our lives. And what it will look like for you to really follow God will look different to me, because our settings and our callings are all different. God is calling each one of us today to live by our true identity. And every day that choice is there and is ours. What identity do you live by? What identity are you living by at school or at college, at university, at work, in your family, in your neighbourhood? Are you known as somebody who has stepped out and has turned their back on the pleasures of Egypt, of your Egypt, for the sake of Christ? So Moses had come to a decision, he was going to step out, he was going to be recognised for who he was, and one day after he'd come to this momentous decision, a crucial event took place. Look at the next verse. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So here's Moses wanting to follow God, wanting to help his own people who are cruelly enslaved, and he sees one of his own people being beaten by an Egyptian. And he wants justice understandably, and he loses the plot for a moment, and he thinks that now is the time for me to lead the Israelites in rebellion. Now is the time. I'm the man. I'm the guy who's going to do this right now, right here. He thought that he was the man that God had sent to set free his people. And so he takes matters into his own hands, and he kills the Egyptian. You can understand why he would do that. This was terrible injustice as he sees one of his own people being beaten like this. And Acts 7 tells us that in that moment, he was expecting his fellow Israelites to look to him in the moment, the great saviour of Israel, who was going to come and set them free. And they were going to rush and follow him. But look at what it says. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Moses had stuck his neck out. He'd left behind the security of the palace and his position and his status and his wealth 
and his education, and he'd rightly taken that step and allied himself to God and to God's chosen people at great cost. And he'd taken matters into his own hands to get justice for one of his own people. And he killed this Egyptian. He was trying to force the situation. But then we read this. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses thought the Israelites were going to rise up, they were going to follow him. This was his moment, this was his time, he was the guy to do this. But they, they didn't. Because it wasn't God's timing. They rejected Moses as their great rescuer. Who made you ruler and judge over us, Moses? They didn't want to know. And the whole situation goes horribly wrong because Moses had obviously been seen and Pharaoh, his ever-jealous half-brother by adoption, found out what had happened. And Exodus 2.15 says this, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Moses had turned his back on the palace. He'd set himself up as this rescuer of the Israelites and he killed the Egyptian. And so Thutmose III tried to kill Moses and, and stamp down this perceived rebellion that he thought was about to happen. And you can understand why he would do that. Moses was committed to God. He'd left so much behind in order to really follow God and be true to who he really was. But the problem was that Moses was trying to force the situation. And Moses had to... And that's a lesson that we all need to learn continually. Being devoted to God, write this down, being devoted to God means submitting to his timing. Being devoted to God is great, but also with that comes the, the fact that we need to submit to God's timing. God wanted Moses to be devoted to him, but that didn't mean that God was going to use him right then and there to rescue his people from Egypt. Partly, firstly, because it was the wrong time for God, and secondly, because it was the wrong time for Moses. Moses wasn't ready yet. God had other plans. You know, being devoted to God doesn't mean that we will necessarily achieve great, spectacular things for God, as Moses did, and we're going to see that in the coming weeks. Sometimes it's just about being consistent in our daily walk with God. Most of us are not going to go and do the kind of stuff that Moses did. It's simply for us about being consistent in our daily walk with God. And God's timing is really the same as our timing. Sometimes we want to do something now, and we might be really keen to serve God. I remember at 16, really feeling God putting his hand on my life to serve him in a full-time capacity in some kind of uh, local church situation. Well, that actually happened. And I was really impatient. I wanted to get on and do it, but I had to wait because God's timing was different to my timing. And sometimes we want to do something now and God says, wait. Or God says, not yet. Or even sometimes, no. We're impatient, aren't we? We want to do something, and we want to do it now. Nobody wants to wait. Nobody wants to wait for that thing that they're looking for. We tend to see things just from our own perspective, which is understandable. But God has other plans. God exists outside of time, and God sees things very differently. He sees the beginning and the end, and he knows everything. And God knows what is best for us, and God's own plans are so often different to ours. But God knows exactly what's needed, and he knows exactly what we need. And sometimes that's different from what we think is needed and what we think we need. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what 
when you're trying to achieve what you believe God's put on your life or what you just think will be a good thing to do next, a, a kind of aim and ambition. I don't know what your plans are. They may be great plans, they may be really godly plans. It's, it's, it's good to plan. That's a biblical thing to do. It's good to, to make plans and to set goals and so on. But we need to realize that God's timing doesn't always fit in with our timing. God's timing doesn't always fit in with our timing. And sometimes that's because God has a bigger plan going on that we're not aware of, pretty much always. But also it's because often we're not ready yet for that. And maybe there's things that we need to experience and go through and learn and be changed about us that will make us more suitable for that which God is calling us to do. And we're just not ready just yet. Moses stepped out in faith. He sacrificed a massive amount. But being devoted to God means trusting God and waiting for his timing. And that's often hard. That's often really difficult. So despite taking this huge step of faith, Moses had blown it. He'd run ahead of God. He was trying to force him. You can understand. I would have probably done the same thing. You can understand why Moses would have done that. Come to that conclusion. I'm the guy. I'm the man. Let's do this. He tried to force the situation, but now he had to get out because it wasn't the right time. But despite the danger he was still in, he still clung to his faith in God and to God's promises. Look at what Hebrews 11.27 says. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Acts 7.29 says he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now you can see this on the map that's here. So Moses was, was up here, and this is uh, kind of Egypt, and Moses fled all the way down here to Midian to get away from his half-brother, Pharaoh, so he was safe and he could escape. And as he found himself there at a well, he came into contact with some Midianite ladies, one of which he ends up marrying. The lesson is there, be careful who is near a well. If you sit down, you never know. <laughs> Exodus 2.21 tells us that Moses agreed to stay with the man, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien or a foreigner in a foreign land. Now just stop and think about it for a minute. Moses is the second most powerful man in Egypt, and therefore the second most powerful man in the world. Superpower of the day. Anything and everything he wanted, riches, power, possessions, women, whatever he wanted, status, it... It's there, it's all his. And in a very short space of time, he's on the run, living as a shepherd in a foreign country. It's difficult to get a more kind of complete transformation, isn't it, from one to the other. Kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. What a, what a massive transformation, what a change. What a complete reversal in fortunes and circumstances and situations. The second most powerful man in the world becomes a shepherd in a tiny, politically irrelevant country. It become like the US Secretary of State or, or the US Vice President, say that the second most powerful person on the planet, humanly speaking, leaving the White House and going to somewhere like Madagascar, no offense to anyone who's from Madagascar, but going to work in Madagascar as a, as a road sweeper. It's kind of the two opposite ends of the spectrum, from ultimate power or, or almost ultimate power to nothingness, to just being a nobody. And you know, sometimes God has to do things like this in our lives to make us useful to Him. Next week we're going to look at, and Ryan's going to take us on this next week, we're going to see how God began to use Moses as God meets face to face with Moses. But before Moses was useful to God, he had to be changed. Moses spent 40 years as the second most powerful man on the planet. 
And he thought that he understandably was the man to set the Israelites free. And he was. But not on his terms. And not on his time. There was nobody better qualified than Moses to do this. There would literally be no one in all the world with a better education than Moses. Acts 7 says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He had everything thrown at him educationally. And if you and I were looking for the right man for Israel, we would have chosen Moses, wouldn't we? But Moses wasn't ready. God had chosen Moses, but he had some lessons to teach him first. Moses needed another 40 years living as a shepherd in the desert in Midian before he was ready to accomplish God's will until he was 80 years old. See, if Moses had tried to free the Israelites when he was 40, it would have been in his own strength. It would have been relying on his education, his reputation, his power, his abilities. And when we do things in our own strength, then they might succeed temporarily, they might have some lasting value, but generally they have no value or lasting value in God's eyes because we do things in our own strength. The Bible says, unless the, the, uh, the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. The Lord wants us to rely on Him and, and do things trusting in His power, not our own. And that's so difficult to do, isn't it? That's not to say that He doesn't want us to use our education, our abilities, our possessions, our influence, because He does. And the things that He's given to us are part of who we are, and Moses would use part of that in the future. But he doesn't want us to rely on them. He doesn't want us to rely on those things. Instead, he wants us to trust in him. And by the time that Moses, as we'll see next week, was 80, Moses was a very different man, in a very different place, and in a very different position. And he was finally, as a shepherd in the desert, ready to do what God wanted him to do. A man probably, difficult to say, but probably quite an arrogant man, as you'd expect. A 40-year-old man who was the second most powerful man in the world. At 80, a very different man, a shepherd, with nothing. When Moses had his first son, he gave him a name that reminded him, reminded himself that he was from another country. He was an alien. How things had changed for Moses, and how his heart had changed. You know, most of us go through desert experiences like Moses at some point in our lives. The circumstances and the reasons are probably going to be different to the ones that were behind Moses' desert experience. It, it's unlikely that any of us are attempting to free a nation from slavery today. But it's often the case that God takes us to places where we would never choose to go ourselves in order that we will trust Him more. And they might be physical places or situational places if you get my uh, meaning. It might be a financial crisis, it might be a relationship problem, it might be a, a health issue, an illness, it might be a bereavement. Places that we would never choose, do I want that? No, I don't. I'm not, that would never be my, course, my choice of action. And yet God, in his wisdom, sometimes takes us and leads us through into those situations so that we learn and we become different people, we become more like Jesus. So that the edges are rubbed off us, some of those the less Christ-like things are, are removed from us, so that we become more useful to God. Maybe today you're in a desert place, and if you're not in a desert place today, you will be sooner or later, because that's life. The Lord does not promise us a problem or pain-free existence. It'd be wonderful if He did, but He doesn't. And actually, in this life, it's about being moulded and shaped and changed, so that we become more and more like Jesus and more and more useful to God. 
But the Bible does say this in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We've been called according to his purpose. Your desert place, whatever your desert place looks like and feels like for you, your desert place is not without purpose. And your desert place may be your desert place for the rest of your life. You may have a health issue and you're just stuck with it. And God hasn't healed you and this is just your reality. Your desert place is not without purpose. And through our desert times, God can change us if we let him and mould us into the people that he wants us to be. The challenge for us is this, how will I respond to my desert experience? Moses was a greater man as an 80-year-old shepherd than he was as a 40-year-old prince. Moses was a greater man as an 80-year-old shepherd than he was as a 40-year-old prince. That's God's upside-down economics. We would choose a 40-year-old prince. God chooses the 80-year-old shepherd. And the key is this, how I respond, write this down, how I respond to my desert experiences really matters to God and it will affect my future. How I respond to my desert experiences really matters to God and it will affect my future. And when we're in desert experiences, desert places, we, we can really do one of two things. We can either become bitter and twisted and resentful about our health problems or our finance or our relationships or whatever it might be, understandably perhaps at some times, or we can try and learn from this and say, Lord, what are you teaching me? Who do I need to be more like? And that, of course, is Jesus. How can I change? How can I learn from this? Moses responded. We, don't, we just get up like a few verses. But what we see is that Moses ultimately responded well to his time in the desert. And he went on to do great things for God. What about you? What about me? What does God need to teach you and me? What is God teaching you right now in your experiences, in, in the experiences that you are having in your life, whatever they might look like this morning? Are you prepared to submit to his timing, even if that's another 40 years of being a shepherd? And are you prepared to do things in his strength rather than in your own strength? The Lord is looking for people today to devote themselves to him, to come out of the shadows, to step out of a kind of fake identity, an identity that's not really theirs, and become the people that they really are in Christ. But we need to remember that being devoted to God, nailing our colours to the mass, living for Him, means trusting in Him, and it means submitting to His timing, and believing that He is working His purposes out. And that's the difficult part, that's the really hard part, when we can't see the bigger picture. We look at your outline. There are three steps of commitment challenging to take today. Some of you might have to take all three. Some of you, only maybe one might be necessary because you've taken the others. And in a sense, this is a, this is a, a, a decision we need to take every day. A fresh isn't it? a kind of once and for all thing. This is a daily choice. Step one, I will choose today to step out from my old life. And maybe for you that means stepping out from your non-Christian life and, and crossing over and, and entering into the good of forgiveness and a relationship with God through Jesus and surrendering yourself to the Lord Jesus and saying, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Maybe for you that means leaving that old life behind and becoming a follower of Jesus. If you've never done that, I encourage you and challenge you to do that today. Or, or maybe it means finally coming out and really being who you are in Christ. And saying, this is my real identity. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm really going to live my life. And, and step two, I will choose to 
today to submit to God's timing for my life. Step three, I'll choose today to respond well to my desert experience. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and just reflect on God speaking to you this morning through this passage, through this amazing account of the amazing life of Moses. Then I just encourage you just to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. In the quietness of this moment, that still small voice of God to speak and respond to his voice this morning. Jesus' name. Amen.